following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Okay, Philippians 2. Hopefully you brought a Bible. If you didn't, just pretend you did. Uh, Helen Rayner, you're going to come and read the passage for us this morning, finishing off Philippians chapter 2 today. Thank you. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I may also be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare, for everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord, and honour people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help that you could not give me. I want to ask you as we, as we start out today, think about people in your life who have been role models. Just have a think about that. Uh, people that you would name and say that that person's a role model for me and maybe in, in some particular area of your life. Uh, think particularly about your Christian faith. Uh, is there a person or a group of people that you would say that person's a real role model? Really look up to them. Uh, I try and emulate them, follow their example. I feel like that's a faithful person to follow. I've had this, this strange experience over the last eight years. I've had, um, I can think of three people who I don't know personally. Okay, these are not, not personal acquaintances. But people that I would, I would have said were role models for me. Uh, these are people that have been an influence on me, uh, an influence on my life, influence on my ministry, through their own ministries, through the books that they've written, through their preaching, through their own uh, speaking and writing. And in the last eight years, each of those people have had significant moral failure and, and really come off the rails or in, in different ways, but they've made a mess of things. They've wrecked their ministries. Um, their ministries have all ended fairly badly. Um, they've brought themselves into disrepute and brought the church largely into real dishonor. And that's a strange experience for me, having had these people as role models in my life. It's quite a destabilizing experience, isn't it? When someone you've looked up to and you've sought to follow them, like some of these people were influential in me getting into ministry, and then for them to end so badly, you sort of feel like, well, who can I look to? Who can be a role model for me? You know, these, you sort of, you know, you wonder. I think it raises that question for us, doesn't it? Of who. Who can we look to as role models in our lives? Who, who are these people that make good role models? Sometimes it's hard to find them. And then when we do find them, a lot of the time, most of the time, they let us down one way or another. Well, I want to put before you this morning two great role models. All right, we're going to look at two excellent role models in the faith. If you are looking for a good role model as a Christian, you can't go past these two guys that we're going to look at this morning. One's got a normal name. One's got a funny name. Timothy, that's the normal name and Epaphroditus. Anyone here called Epaphroditus? 
Apologies if you are. But that's, about, that's a mouthful. Uh, but these two guys, I mean, they're ordinary Christian guys, right? So let's not think these are, these are somehow super spiritual Christians. They're not Jesus. They're ordinary guys living ordinary lives, but they're faithful. And they're walking out the way of Jesus. And little bits of their story are captured in this chapter. Paul records it. And not just for the purpose of giving us an update on his own travels and his own plans, but for the purpose of setting these lives before us to say there's something here that you can learn from. There's something about these guys that you can follow their example. There's something here that we can take. And we need that. We need these people to look to people that have gone ahead of us, people that have lived this life before us, people that have walked this journey of faith before us so we can look to them, take something from their lives, and it helps us as we're living out our own life, even though it is 2,000 years later. So we're going to look at Timothy, and we're going to look at Epaphroditus and just see what we can learn from these two guys this morning, okay? So we take them one at a time. First of all, Timothy. Paul talks about Timothy, verse 19 through to 24. Quick little bit of background. Timothy was Paul's primary traveling companion. So Paul had a whole circle of people around him. Don't think of him like a lone ranger. There was a whole circle there. But Timothy was the closest. He was Paul's main co-partner in ministry. Timothy was converted through Paul's ministry in Lystra. And then he became a companion with Paul, a missionary traveling companion. Uh, went Went with him to Philippi. So Timothy was there when the church in Philippi was planted. So he's known to the church in Philippi. He was part of getting that thing up and running. And then often what would happen is as Paul traveled around, he would dispatch Timothy to a particular church, particular people to go go and see them on Paul's behalf, to go and send word from Paul and often to bring back a report to Paul about how that particular church was going. So Timothy had been back to Philippi several times, back and forth, liaising with Paul. And now as Paul writes this letter, Timothy's with him in Rome. So Paul's in prison. Timothy's there with him and he's helping Paul and he's supporting Paul and he's ministering to Paul's needs. And Paul says that he's hoping to send Timothy back, back to the Philippians at some stage. He's hoping to send him back there as soon as Paul sees how things go with him. So here's what he says about Timothy in verse uh, 21. He says for, uh, sorry, verse 20, I think. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. So Paul describes him like a father-son relationship. That's how it works. Uh, Paul really saw Timothy as a son. He's like his protege. In the faith. So Paul mentored him and supported him like a father and a son. And he says, Timothy <clears throat> was a guy who had genuine concern for this community in Philippi. I think the one quality that stands out to me about Timothy is that he was a servant. That's, that's really what Paul brings out, that he had a servant heart. Paul says, I haven't got anyone else like Timothy. Timothy has genuine concern for you people. You know, Timothy didn't just love the Philippians because that was his job. He didn't just love them because Paul told them, you've got to like these people. He didn't just love them because it was in his job description. He loved them. He loved them like Jesus. And he wanted to spend time with them. And he took an interest in them. And he had genuine concern for their welfare. And Paul contrasts that with everyone else. So he sets Timothy up here. And then he draws this comparison in verse 21 where he says, For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. Isn't that such an indicting verse? Everyone looks out for their own interests. Paul could have written that five minutes ago. 
couldn't he? Not 2,000 years ago. Like, isn't that just as true today? Just shows, hey, 2,000 years, what changes? Some things and yet nothing. That is just as much the condition of the human heart today as it was in the first century. Everyone looks out for number one. Everyone looks out for their own interests, that we are fundamentally selfish people. And, and I would say that even, even though that is true of every age and every generation, I would say we're living in a time now where that's particularly true. Would you say everyone looks out for their own interests? We live in such a consumptive society. We live in such an individualistic society. We live in such a narcissistic society now. We live in what one writer has called the age of the big me. It's the big me. Uh, David Brooks wrote that, uh, New York Times columnist. Uh, this, this idea that in, in, in our culture, Western culture now, it is all about me. It is all about the autonomous individual. I am the big deal. You know, and, and it, we just like we do it from the youngest age, right? I mean, this is how we raise our children, right? As soon as you put your daughter in that onesie that says princess, like right at the, and apology, if, you, if your daughter's got the onesie and princess, that's fine, that's fine. I'm just being facetious. It's just, it's just a symbol, I think, of a culture where what we think we're doing is generating healthy self-esteem. What we end up doing is raising a little mini narcissist, right? Who thinks that they are the absolute center of the entire universe. That's not self-esteem. That is just self-obsession, right? That's, that's way beyond self-esteem. But we are, we are indoctrinating our children with this idea that they're the sun, that the whole universe, whole galaxy orbits around, you know, as if, that's, if that, as if that's healthy. And as our kids grow older, I mean, I've told you the stories of the songs that our kids have sung at the end of year assemblies, like Hall of Fame, standing in the Hall of Fame, world's going to know my name. Or uh, what's 660 song, The Greatest, right? I'm the greatest, I'm going to be the greatest, don't know what second place is. It's like all of these songs, we are telling our kids and they are just imbibing this idea that they are the center of the universe, the most amazing thing. Everyone else needs to recognize how awesome I am. That is why one of the number one goals of young people now is to be famous. That's what they want. It's not to serve. It's not to be part of this interconnected web of human flourishing. It is to be famous. That's what they want. So social media kicks into all of that and just pours petrol on the fire of this kind of narcissistic culture where we're just uploading all of our best photos and then checking back to see how many likes and shares and clicks and retweets we get. And all the time, it's about me. It's about my life. It's about my agenda. And it's about everyone else seeing how incredibly special and awesome I am. That is the cultural air that we're in. And I'm sad to say it creeps into the church, right? That's, that's where people like me stand up and say to people like you, you are going to have an amazing impact for God. You are going to live an extraordinary life. You are going to do awesome things for Jesus. Now, when you hear that, I know that kind of sounds like it's got the ring of truth about it, and it does, but, what re but listen to the emphasis. You are going to do awesome things for God. God's kind of in the background. <laughs> what's, what's really important is you are going to do amazing things for God. That's not how the God of the Bible works. When God shows up, he says, I'm going to do amazing things. And it might be my good pleasure to do them through you, but I'm going to do some good things here. So let's get the focus of you and back onto God. So even within our Christian culture, this kind of baptized narcissism takes hold. And it is the antithesis of the gospel. This is, I think, what we fail to see as Christians. It is the absolute opposite of the gospel. We have a Savior who stepped into this world and said, The Son of Man has come.
Not to be served, but what? To serve and give his life as a ransom for many. I don't think he could have been clearer. And then he lived that out through giving his life on a cross for us, that ultimate act of self-giving and service. Jesus shows us what it means to have the heart of a servant, and that's the heart that Timothy had. The gospel that we follow is not the gospel of self. It's the gospel of moving away from ourselves towards the other. It's the gospel of being a servant. It's the gospel of looking out to the needs of the other, looking out to the interests of the other, being orientated towards the other. Isn't that what God did for you? Isn't that what Jesus has done for you? And now as those who are owned and claimed by Jesus, that is what he calls us to do for others. Not to be self-obsessed, as our culture tells us to be, but to be constantly orientated towards the other. That's the heart of Timothy. Now, that, is that easy to do? Anyone find that easy? Maybe some of you do. Maybe some of you have got the gift of serving. I don't know. I certainly don't. I don't find it easy. I know it's a good idea, right? We all sit here, yeah, servant. I want to be like Timothy. We're going to walk out there. You know what's going to happen, right? You're going to become that same self-obsessed, self-gratifying person that walked in the doors this morning, right? So am I. That's our own selfish bent. It takes the grace of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, and our own commitment to take steps towards others and away from ourselves. We're trying to work with our boys on this. It's not easy. Uh, we have a little thing that we do, uh, you, often during the school holidays, and we just call it POF, putting others first. So we ask the boys, you know, what, what have you done today to put others first? Silence. <laughs> Nothing. Try again tomorrow. What have you done today? Nothing again. But you have to really dig, you know, to try and get anything out of them. But gradually, little by little, you know, maybe. And then, you know, the hope is that they have that in their head the next day. Oh, what can I do to put others first today? Because mum and dad are going to ask me about it at dinner time. Better have something to say. Josh came up with a ridiculous one the other day. He, uh, he, there was a situation, I think, where they were taking turns on the laptop for something. And Ezra had said that he was happy to go second. So Josh then said, oh, well, I, I put Ezra first by letting him go second. It's like, I don't think that's how it works, buddy. I don't think you get to say you've put him first because you have let him go sick and he's already putting others first. You can't claim that one. So that's where we're at as a family, all right? I'm just telling you, we are, we are paddling in the shallows of all of this. Right? This is hard. It's hard for our boys. It's hard for me. This is, this is tough um, because we have such a bent inward towards ourselves. It is a real, it is, it is the battle of our lives, I think, turning that by the grace of God towards the other, towards other people. I don't know whether you've seen the movie A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. So have you seen that? It's a lovely movie. It is a great movie. It's a really heartwarming movie. Go and have a look at it if you haven't seen it. Um, Tom Hanks, he plays, uh, what's the guy's name? Fred Rogers, who uh, was a famous children's entertainer in the United States for decades and decades, a very long-running show called uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And he was a Christian. That doesn't come through very much in the movie. Uh, and he was an ordained Presbyterian minister. That also doesn't come through in the movie, typical Hollywood. But um, it's, fa it's a fascinating story of a journalist, Lloyd Vogel, who goes and interviews Fred Rogers. And in the course of that first conversation, you see the way that the conversation turns back towards the journalist, turns back towards Lloyd. He's supposed to be interviewing Fred, but Fred starts taking this interest in his life and asking him questions 
and asking him about his father. And Lloyd just finds himself opening up. And he's starting to talk about his estranged relationship with his dad. And it's like the spotlight's on his life, which is not the way he thought this thing was going at all. And then at, through, through the movie, that's how the relationship develops. Fred Sanders just showing this kindness and showing this unconditional love. And even when Lloyd pushes that away and it's overwhelming for him and he can't deal with it because of his own pain, still Fred Sanders just offers love, offers kindness, offers a listening ear, asks questions, and just shows the compassion. Shows the kindness of a father, really, that, that Lloyd didn't have. And as a result, well, I won't spoil the movie for you, but go, go, and, go and watch it. And, and I think as you see the, the character of Fred Sanders, I know some of that story is fictionalized, but that character, the person that you see, is an example of such a servant-hearted person. And in real life, Fred Sanders did this out of Christian conviction because he was seeking to walk in the way of Jesus. And that orientated him towards the other, whoever that other was, often children, but whoever was sitting in front of him. It wasn't about him. It was about that person and where they were at. Beautiful example of that, of that servant heart. So I would just ask you to think about what, is it, what does it look like for you to start cultivating, asking God to start cultivating within you a Timothy spirit? Think about that. The spirit of Timothy. Spirit of a servant. Small steps maybe. But just whoever God puts in front of you at any given time, don't just see them as someone who's there for you to talk to about your stuff. Don't just see them as a pair of ears to listen to everything you've got to say and all your opinions on the world. Don't just certainly don't see them as someone for you to use towards your ends. See them as someone God's put there for you to take an interest in their life. Who is this human being sitting in front of you? And what can you learn about their story and what God's doing in their life? And how might you be able to encourage them in some small way? Let me give you one other quick little thing on, on serving. Uh, there's such an opportunity in our church community with young people. We've got teenagers and young adults, some of you might be here today, uh, really in need of mentors in our church. And I'm not talking about any formalized or organized ministry program. I'm just talking about being scriptural, uh, where the older men mentor younger men and older women mentor younger women. Every generation speaking the mighty acts of God to the generation coming behind them. And as a church, we've got responsibility to do that to this emerging generation. That's a way of serving young people in our church. You might not even feel like you're equipped. or Look, if you love Jesus, you're equipped. Right? You've got something to say. And you've got some way to serve. And it might be that you could come alongside a young person, not to be some Bible guru, but to love them, serve them, walk alongside them. Let me know if you want to pursue that, because that's a very practical way of you serving other people that can make a real difference in their lives. That's a Timothy spirit. So God wants us to cultivate the heart of Timothy, the heart of a servant. Okay, let's move on to number two. This guy is less, less well-known, but just as important in the biblical story. His name is Epaphroditus. Now, Epaphroditus is only mentioned here in Philippians. Right, Timothy's mentioned all over the place, but only in Philippians will you find mention of this guy, Epaphroditus. And it turns out he is a member of the Philippian church. So he's part of their community. And what's happened, here's the backstory. At a certain point, the Philippians took up an offering for Paul, right? Passed the hat around. They, they collected money for his ministry to support him. They heard he was in prison. And then, I don't know what they did, but Epaphroditus ended up with the job of taking the money to Paul, right? Maybe they drew straws for that. Maybe he volunteered. We don't know. But he ended up with the job of taking the money to Paul. Now, I don't need to tell you that in the first century, this was not a direct debit, okay? This was not automatic bank transfer stuff. You can imagine a massive sack full of cash, 
that this church had raised, someone's got to take that money now from Philippi all the way to Rome. That's 1,600 kilometers, right? And we're not talking about cars, buses, and planes. We're talking about on foot, maybe a boat at some point, possibly a horse, throw in a donkey. You know, this is a 1,600K journey through some treacherous territory carrying a massive bag of cash. Now, you can imagine the danger in that sort of journey. Huge danger of getting mugged, robbed, beaten, and quite possibly killed. And yet Epaphroditus said, I'll do it. I'll go. Will I make it alive? I don't know. Will I get mugged on the way? Possibly. But will I go? Absolutely. And so he made this journey and he got to Paul. And more than that, we're just piecing it together from what you read here. At some point on that journey, or maybe once he arrived, he got sick, really sick. So sick, he almost lost his life, Paul says, that he almost died. And yet even then, he didn't turn back, didn't go home, didn't quit, didn't stop. But he continued doing what he could do to serve God, serve Paul, and serve the gospel. That's why Paul says this about him. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Paul was planning to finish this letter to Philippi and then hand it to Epaphroditus and say, could you take it home? And Epaphroditus would be the messenger taking this letter back to Philippi. The man who almost lost his life and was willing to risk his life for the gospel. I think the thing that stands out for me in the life of Epaphroditus is sacrifice. There's a man willing to count the cost of following Jesus. And I think that's an idea that's largely foreign to us because we, we want a Jesus who doesn't ask that much of us, right? We want a Jesus who's very comfortable and fits in quite nicely with my life. Thank you very much. Even better if Jesus could endorse my life goals and my business plan and my financial 10-year strategy. Uh, that's the kind of Jesus I want. You know, we want a Jesus who, I'm happy with Jesus as long as he doesn't ask of me what might be uncomfortable, inconvenient, or heaven forbid, require some sort of sacrifice from me. That tends to be the way of faith, right, in, in our Western culture. Thank you, brother. So, you know, we, it's, it's kind of like we, we, just ch we just end up changing the Bible, I think. We just kind of read the Gospels and we read Jesus saying, if anyone wants to come after me, let him take up his pillow. And follow me. You know, is that, is that what Jesus said? Think about that while I have a quick glass of water. If anyone wants to come after me, let him take up his cushion and follow me. That's, I think that's, that's basically our 21st reading of that verse. If anyone wants to come after me, let him take up his lazy boy and follow me. Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. Bonhoeffer said, when a man comes to Christ, he comes to die. That's it. We come to Jesus and we die. We die to ourselves. We die to my plans, my dreams, my 10-year goals, my life strategies, my financial security, all of that. We lay it down. This is not what it means to be a super spiritual giant. This is simply what it means to be a Christian, is to be a follower of Jesus, is to lay our life down and say, Jesus, I'm yours. And I'll go where you want me to go. I have no rights of my own. I have no more plans of my own. I have no more dreams that are just mine. Now it's all yours, Jesus. And what you ask of me, I will do. Where you call me, I will go. What you ask me to surrender, I will give up. Whatever cost you ask of me, I will count that cost. And I will make whatever sacrifice you ask me to make. 
Now, how many of us can honestly say those words? That's hard. That searches our hearts, right? This is what it means, though, to walk in the way of Jesus, is that we're prepared to count the cost. Jesus said, what man's going to build a tower without first sitting down and counting the cost of that tower? Many of us will start building our own tower. We haven't counted the cost of what Jesus is asking us to count. And we need to ask God to give us an Epaphroditus spirit that we're willing to make a sacrifice, which is really easy to say until God actually asks you to do something, right? Again, it's an idea that we like. It's a concept that we like. But when God actually calls, that's much, much harder. There's a couple uh, named Adoniram and Anne Judson. They lived in the early 19th century. Uh, they were missionaries, came from the US, and they ministered in Burma for decades and decades and decades. They were involved in translating the entire Bible into the Burmese language, uh, Burma that's now Myanmar. And it, I mean, when you think about that project, that's extraordinary, um, the entire Bible uh, and the meticulous work, if you know anything about Bible translation, the accuracy uh, of that project, is, it's incredible what they achieved. They left Boston uh, for Burma. And on the way, on the ship, uh, Anne miscarried her first baby. They got to Burma. They'd been ministering for some time. They had a second child. That child lived for six months and got sick, got a fever, and passed away. Soon after that, Adoniram was imprisoned, got caught up in, in, a, in a civil war, I think, in Burma, and was imprisoned there, spent about 18 months, I think 18 months to two years, in a Burmese prison in horrific conditions, tortured squalid conditions, denied health care, um, incredibly cramped environment, just horrible, horrible stuff, 18 months there. Finally, he was released. Six months after he came out of prison, his wife Anne passed away. She was only 37 when she died. Soon after she passed away, their third child, six months later, passed away. Just an incredible uh, suffering. And yet, Adoniram stayed on in Burma a further 19 years to bring that project of translating scripture for the Burmese people right through to completion. Now, we could look at that and we say, man, that is, that is extraordinary. That is just unimaginable suffering that he went through. Funnily enough, I think he had a premonition that this was what God was asking of him. Uh, all the way back when he asked for Anne's hand in marriage, he wrote a letter to her dad. Let me read you some of what he wrote. This is obviously before they left for Burma. He says, put it on the screen for you. I have to now ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, to insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? <laughs> what would you have said? Dads of daughters? Oh, boy. What would you have said if you were Anne being asked to marry this guy? You would have run a mile, maybe. Some of us. I mean, who wants to sign up for this life? You know, most of us would have headed for the hills. But not Anne. And not her father, and not Epaphroditus. They were willing to count the cost, to go where God called them to go, to do what he had asked them to do, without looking back. Was it easy? No. 
It was unimaginably hard. But they trusted in their Savior every step of the way. And it, it made them even more hungry for heaven after this life is over. Compared to that, you and I aren't going to be able to make much sacrifice at all. We're not going to be called to do the sorts of things, most likely, that Adoniram and Anne ever did. Maybe you will. Maybe there's some here that are going to be called to the mission field and called to those sorts of conditions. We don't know. But even in our own lives, it's easy to look at that and go, well, I can't relate to that because that's incredibly dramatic. But think about the sacrifice or the cost that God might be asking you to make in your faith. For every one of us, there's a cost. It might not be going to Burma, but it'll be something. Every one of us, because it takes us, each of us, picking up our cross and following Jesus. So what's the cost? What is the cost that God is asking you to count? Maybe it's something relatively small. Maybe God is just saying to you, I want you to make some time for me. In your busy schedule, in your crammed full life, with your already full plate, I want you to make some time for me. That's going to take a sacrifice of time. That's going to take a little bit less social media time. That's going to take something else being shifted around so that you can spend some time in God's word every day. Maybe that's the nudge from the Holy Spirit for you this morning. And that's the sacrifice maybe that God's calling you to make. Maybe it's the sacrifice of saying no to a a job promotion because you know that that would just compromise your family time, your church time, and it would be unhealthy for you, even though it might be more money. And there's a sacrifice in that. There's a cost to pay when you say no to those things. But maybe that's the nudge. Maybe it's to step into something that God's calling you to do. There's a family in our church looking at adopting a child. That's a huge calling. That's a huge step. But they're looking at stepping into that because they've got a sense God's in this and he's calling us to do it. And it's not going to be without cost. And it's not going to be without sacrifice. And it's not going to be without inconvenience and interruption to their life. But when you've got a sense that God is nudging and stirring and calling, they're willing to say yes. They're willing to step into that. Maybe God is is nudging you into something new, a new venture, a new season, a new something. And you're not sure. And you're holding back because you're afraid of the risk that it involves. And you're afraid of the cost that might be asked of you. Look to Epaphroditus. Look beyond Epaphroditus to Jesus, who who the scriptures said, despising the shame set his eyes on the Father and carried his cross all the way up that hill of Calvary and was willing to obey even to the point of death. He's our model. He's our example. What is the sacrifice that God is calling you to make? Maybe it's the simple sacrifice of serving in church. I was going to make this whole message about set up and pack down. I've refrained. I've refrained from doing that. I hope, I hope you're happy about that. I couldn't resist one mention though. You know, I mean, it relates, doesn't it? I didn't choose the passage this morning, people. You know, the Holy Spirit did. But just let the Lord work in your heart and ask yourself, what kind of sacrifice might be waiting for you? You know, I mean, in all seriousness, you know, there is a sacrifice that is part of being a church family, that is part of being a church community. Yes, it's going to take some effort. Yes, it's going to take a bit of time. Did Scripture ever tell us otherwise? Did God ever tell us otherwise? No, I don't know what you thought you signed up for, but this is the nature of the Christian life. We have an incredible Savior, but he says to us, follow me, follow me. And it's only by losing your life that you're going to gain it. You give your life away for God and for the gospel, he's going to give it back again. He's going to show you what real life looks like, a life that's laid down and surrendered and sacrificed to him. So I can't make all the connections and the applications because I don't know all of your stories. But you just ask the Lord this morning, what's that step of sacrifice that you might be calling me to take? What's the cost? 
that he might be calling you to count this morning. And how can you step into that? Rather than shrink back from it, squeeze it away and just go and get on with your Mother's Day. But you just think about what is that step? What does that cost? So two ordinary guys, right? Timothy and Epaphroditus. Yes, they're in the Bible, so we think they're incredible. But these were just ordinary guys being faithful to God in the space and the time and the place where he had put them. But I pray that we could see these two as genuine role models in our faith, that we can learn from them. And I pray this morning that even as we finish, even now, that God might just be working in your heart to give you at least the beginnings of a desire for a Timothy spirit, for the heart of a servant. Do we desire that as people? Are we fed up with our self-gratifying culture enough yet to really desire something different for ourselves and our families and our church, the heart of a Timothy? And do we want the heart of an Epaphroditus, a willingness to sacrifice even when it is hard? And even when it disrupts all of our best made plans, are we willing to lay our life down and say, God, give me the heart of Epaphroditus, the one who risked it all for the gospel, that I would be willing to follow you wherever you go. However God is leading, however God is prompting, would you listen? Would you obey? And would you rely on God's grace every step of the way? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for these two men that we've talked about this morning, Timothy and Epaphroditus. We thank you, God, that even now as we're talking to you, they're right there with you in heaven. And we thank you for their servant hearts, their sacrificial hearts, as they lived out their lives and their callings in this world. I want to pray now, Lord, just for those of us in the room here, those of us watching at home, that you'd settle on our heart what it looks like in our life to be a servant what it looks like in our life to count the cost. Would you place it on our heart? God, if there's a next step there that you're wanting us to take, we pray that you would just bring it right to the front of our consciousness now and put it there so that we can't escape and keep it there in front of us, God. If there's a person that you're wanting us to connect to, if there's a calling that you're stirring on our life, maybe it's been there for a while and today is a day where it's just burning red hot. Maybe just the beginning of something, there's a seed Lord, that you're planting in some hearts today for the very first time, a sense maybe there's something new to step into. God, even in the most ordinary ways, in the most everyday kind of conversations, would you help us to obey you and to be servants? Servants of you, servants of one another, servants of those uh, around us. And God, as we do this, we pray that it wouldn't just be our own efforts, our own trying to be good people but it would be us living out this faith that you've given us out of gratitude to you, Jesus, the one who has given it all to us, the one you have served us so faithfully, Jesus. You have sacrificed for us so faithfully. Uh, Lord, what can we do but give our lives back to you and lay them down and say, we are yours, God. So show us how to walk in the way that these servants walked before us as we stand on the shoulders of many others that have walked this path before. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.